There's a video version on NPR radio of The American Life that captured the story of a prize-winning photojournalist at one point in this video. He soberly confesses that many photojournalists remain spectators as they observe and record the misfortunes of others. And then he told the interviewer a story about an incident in which he continued snapping pictures as a woman eventually drowned. He was sent out on assignment to get pictures of a coastal storm. And so he says, I I went out to this island, I walked on the beach, and there was this one figure standing by the ocean looking out. The video then scans to a photo that shows this woman standing on the shore's edge with waves crashing all around her. He continues, he says, she was drinking a beer. A split second after this picture was taken, a wave came in, hit the embankment below her feet, knocked the sand out, and she went sliding into the water. The video scans to a second photo that shows the woman lying in the shallow water after the wave had retreated. Then the photojournalist says this, I was probably at least 50 feet away from her, shooting with a telephoto lens. She was in the water. She was either in shock or drunk. I didn't know. I thought, okay, am I going to make a rescue? I already got the shot that I need. The video then turns to a third photo that shows two men approaching the women, and she has her hand outstretched for help. He then says, I turned around, and within 100 feet of me, there was a lifeguard. So I continued to photograph the sequence. There was someone who was with the lifeguard who got there first. He rushed to her, and he was ready to reach out and grab her and pull her into safety, but at last second, something stopped him. Next photo in the video journal pictures the two men backing off as a large wave prepares to crash on top of this helpless woman. The photojournalist finished the story. He said, the wave looked to me like it was 20 feet high. Within seconds after this photograph was taken, she was covered by the wave. I realized that she was gone. And later in the interview, he admits that he could have made a difference. But instead, he chose to observe and take pictures. Now, he only takes, quote, easy and fun pictures because they are less of a burden. I was struck by this story. And I was struck, to be quite honest, at how similar that attitude can be to a person's thinking about their their experience and their participation in the life of a local church, the life of the community. There are a lot of folks who spend a good deal of time observing and taking pictures and not really making a difference in the lives of others, any kind of difference in the lives of others. And I would add, as a result, they're not experiencing any significant change and growth in their own lives as a result of the nitty-gritty that community is. And of course, that's where we have been for several weeks. Learning of the nitty-gritty of community. Jesus, when he talked about community when he created his church, when he launched his church, the community that he had in mind was messy. 
It was inconvenient. It was costly. It was time-consuming. It's just plain hard. Why? Because the church happens to be filled with broken people. Redeemed for sure. But still broken. People who are, who are trying to get it right and so often do not. Have you known people in your life that are in search for the perfect church? And when they find it, they wreck it as soon as they walk in the door. <laughs> That's the nature of church. It is the called out ones. Called out from the world. Broken, redeemed by Jesus. Living out the life of community that he calls us to. You remember those words of Jesus? Matthew. He told his disciples that he was going to build his church. The gates of hell would not stand against it. Other translations would say the gates of hell will not overcome the force or the presence of the church. And indeed, he was talking about a new presence in the world. Presence that would, that would bring for all to see the values of the kingdom of God. Bring them right into view for people to, to, to clearly see them. And those who were citizens of that kingdom would live out the values of God the King in such a way that those who see it and are not a part of it would be attracted to it and be drawn to it. Those who, in Jesus' words, would be held hostage behind the gates of hell. That is what the presence of the church in the world is all about. To live out the values of the kingdom. To live them out with a commitment and an honesty and an integrity so that others are drawn to Jesus. Not not drawn to us, but drawn to Jesus. The one whose value system we are living. And... We all know that the best way for that to happen is to do something about it on your own, right? No? The American mantra. If you want something done right, then you do it yourself. We (laughs) I I think we all heard that a bit when we grew up, Zach. We gotta throw that out when it comes to the life of the church, my friends. That is not the philosophy or the value system of the Church of Christ. And so, this morning, I want us to spend a little time together just kind of running through a review of where we've been to this point. And here's why. Next Sunday, we're not going to be here together. We'll be at where again? And what time was that again? Good, okay. That's where we're going to be next Sunday, Parfit Park, 9 o'clock. And... uh, the Sunday after that, we're going to then return. What we've, we've sort of done in this, this first section on body life, uh, being the life of Christ together in this world, is, is sort of begin to establish a foundation, and then we're going to come back to that in the first Sunday of August and continue and uh, look a little bit more closely at the nature of relationships that God's people have together. And, and here's the thing. In a word, it just gets messier. But it is so rich, it is so meaningful, it is, it is what God calls us to. And so we're going 
we're going to continue to push on and, and, and become a little bit more personal in terms of, okay, how does, how does this apply in my life in relationship with my brothers and sisters in this place? So let's spend some significant time this morning reviewing uh, the, the truths that we have, we have learned through this series. And then at the end of the sermon this morning, we're going to stand together and we're going to read one of my all-time favorite passages from Acts. It's a little bit different how we usually do it. We, we stand and we read earlier together. So just know that we haven't forgotten that. It'll be what will seem kind of a, a bit of an abrupt turn right at the end, but I think, uh, I think it'll be meaningful after we have sort of been reminded of, of some of these things uh, that we have been learning. From the book of Romans, chapter 12, from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, because as we've said, they are the body life texts in the New Testament. Uh, it's just hard to find anything that is just more clear, that is more real, that in many ways is more raw in terms of, of how God's people are to think and act in living as the body of Christ in the world. So, some truths that we've learned. There were three of them that we began to learn right off the bat from Romans 12. You remember the first two verses? These words, these, these words of exhortation that we heard from Paul. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So, someone tell me, anyone, what is the driving motivation behind the life that we are to live as the people of God? To bring glory to God, God's mercy, living in response to God's mercy. Remember that. We, we talked briefly about how we dare not forget that the first 11 chapters of Romans, which are not a part of this series for us, are Paul's treatise on salvation through the law, which no one ever achieves and therefore no one is ever saved by keeping the law, versus salvation by grace, which is abundant in Jesus Christ, and the only way that salvation can be achieved. So Paul has, has looked at sort of this, this overview of all humanity, and then he spends time being specific about the Jews and their responsibility in response to the law. And then he, he brings the, the Greeks or the Gentiles into it, and essentially he arrives at a place in those early chapters that says any effort to be holy, any effort to please God... Any effort to keep the law is futile. Essentially, all of humankind is lost. But God, who is rich in mercy, has done a wonderful thing. Okay? And that's where he ends at the end of chapter 11 with this great doxology. Who can understand God? Who knows his mind? Who has offered him counsel? This God is mysterious and wonderful, is Paul's conclusion and he has saved us by his heart's desire to do that. And as a result, we therefore need to live our lives in view of God's 
mercy. Let the reality of what God has done for us in Christ drive everything that we do. God has done an incredible work, and we reap the benefit as his people. So then, what does that life look like? What is our response to this great salvation? Do we simply just kind of muddle our way along and, and, and live according to our own plan, our own desires, because our ticket to heaven is paid for and, and we're, we're waiting patiently or impatiently for heaven? What are we to do? Do you recall? What's the response to God's mercy to offer ourselves as living sacrifices? And it's so interesting, the language that Paul uses here in Romans 12, that's the only response. What else could we do? You know, we throw ourselves in the altar and say, God, I'm yours. Because what you have done is amazing. So the first truth that we've learned in these first couple of verses of Romans is that the people of God live sacrificially. And sacrifice by its, by its very definition, it, it, it implies giving up something. It implies a cost. certainly implies inconvenience. It implies giving up the right to live life the way that we choose to live it. We don't do any old thing we want. We do what it is that God desires of us as his people because he has done everything for us. And remember, we talked about living sacrifice. It's not once, it's continuous. It's not a one-and-done deal. But we are constantly examining ourselves and the temptation that we face to crawl off the altar. Remember? Okay. Second truth that we talked about, the words that Paul uses are significant. Offer your bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular. Now, the tenses we learned are important. We must understand that the offering of our bodies as many individual living sacrifices is, is viewed and received by God with great pleasure as one sacrifice. We might say that, that God is into numbers. God is into numbers for his pleasure and his joy. That the, the more people that are surrendering their lives to him and coming together as a part of this, this one body, I think, I think the greater joy and, and greater pleasure he has. And so, so we must be then intentional about shifting our individualistic thinking because we've talked about that as well. That permeates our culture. As Christians, the disease that is rampant in the church is it's me and God. I've got to pull myself up by my own spiritual bootstraps and make this happen. That is nowhere in Scripture. And so we have to be in, in, intentional about shifting from the me and God thinking to the we and God thinking. Uh, not, uh, not forgetting that, that Paul, following these verses of being living sacrifices and presenting our bodies in such a way, uh, launches right into body life. And we've seen that together. It's an important link. Probably the hardest piece of being a living sacrifice is living it with one another.
a whole lot easier to do it on my own. Problem is, is when we do it on our own, we're not really doing it. You know, when we're growing on our own, we're not really growing. Not in the way that God intends for us to grow. You know, if, 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 it's, if it's a solitude journey, if, you know, if, if I'm the Lone Ranger Christian, then, then we really probably just ought to throw all the one another's out that are in the Scripture because it's hard to do the one another's when we're not with one another. Would you agree? Are you awake? Yeah. Okay, just check it. Okay, a third truth that we discovered then along the way, to be part of this living sacrifice then requires a conscious and intentional change in our thinking, and that's why Paul talks about the renewal of our minds. As we learned that the verb he uses there is passive, then we understand that, you know, it's not really something that we, we conjure up in ourselves. We don't really get it done. But the passive verb means that the Spirit who is at work in my life as a child of God makes me aware of what God is wanting to do, brings into my mind and my ability, to, gives me the ability to begin to process and think through and live out the values of God's kingdom. And so we are a people who are consciously, intentionally thinking about our actions and our participation in the body of Christ. Is this something that I'm doing on my own or am I open to the togetherness and the life that God has called us to live together? So we recognize that It is what God desires from us. And in view of his mercy, and there's that motivation again, we open our lives to the work of the Spirit. Again, more and more, making us less concerned about me and more concerned about we. Okay, And this is all grounded in a fourth truth that we have learned along the way as well. Mike did a great job with this on talking about the nature of God. The nature of God and and the nature of our community. So, tell me, what about the nature of God has anything to do with the nature of our community? Anyone? Venture a guess? Triune God. Yeah. God exists in community. You know, that is the distinctive, that... That is the distinctive of, of Orthodox Christianity through, through the centuries. A great word for it is triunity. God is three, yet one. God exists in Father, Son, and Spirit, yet it is a perfect oneness. We do not worship three gods. We worship the three persons, if I can say it that way, of the one God. This is the original community. It's a community that has always been, and it's a community that always will be. And that just kind of hurts my head to think about how that can be. But it is. And so, when we look at the biblical truth of God's people created in His image, I think sometimes we're tempted to think of our ability to reason and have compassion and love and our thought life, you know, all that kind of stuff but another facet of being created in the image of God is created for community. Created to live in relationship with others. Make sense? So far? Okay. So, 
the importance of our life together, then, is grounded in the nature of who God is. And that's the reason that a, a unified, harmonious body of believers is so important. That's why coming together is, is so important. And, and, I've, and I've been fearful all along, and I've said this to you over and over and over again. This is not a legalistic call to be in worship every Sunday of the year. And I, no! It's just a call to examine your life and say, you know, am, am I living this life in the community that God has called me to? Uh, where is the local body in terms of my priorities in life? And that's where, and, and I've had conversations with some folks, I think that's where some of our struggle comes because we don't want our life in Christ and our maturity in Christ and our growth in Christ to be dependent upon one another. That's bottom line. You know, and, and, and if it is, and I think that's what Scripture teaches, then that means that we probably ought to think that it's fairly important. And that's a struggle because, because we are American Christians. And we really like our privacy and our individuality. And we like doing things our own way. And, and that's probably one of the greatest clashes of of just understanding Scripture and, and, and bringing it home to the culture in, in which we live. So, harmonious, boat, harmonious excuse me, body life and committed body life is so important because it, it will shape people's understanding of who God is. Maybe right, maybe wrong. That's why Jesus told his disciples that they would be known for their love of one another. Ah, oh, these people will recognize you. They'll know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. Um, implied in that word is, is an action. It is, it is being together. And, and they, of course, were living much of their lives together at that time. And that's why he prayed to his father for their unity and their oneness in John 17. So that the world would look at this group that spends a lot of time hanging out together, living these kingdom values, and they go, wow, that's not something I've seen before. That's the nature of the church in the world. Read the coolest thing this week. It's kind of a tangent uh, to this on the nature of God and community life, but I think it's fun. David Brooks, some of you perhaps have read his book called The Social Animal. He explores how humans are designed for community. In one section, he describes the difference between our laughing in isolation and in groups. You laugh much by yourself? Robert Provine of the University of Maryland has found in a study that he's done that people are 30 times more likely to laugh when they're with other people than when they're alone. When people are in bonding situations, he says, laughter flows. Surprisingly, people who are speaking are 46% more likely to laugh during conversations than people who are listening. And they're not exactly laughing at hilarious punchlines. Only 15% of the sentences that trigger laughter are funny in any way that is discernible. Instead, laughter seems to bubble up spontaneously, he says, amidst conversations when people feel themselves responding in similar ways to the same emotionally positive circumstances. I thought that was fascinating. Even the seemingly mundane parts of humanity, like laughter, show how we've been hardwired by God to love and enjoy relationships. 
You know, the reality is life together can be so stinking hard. And so we avoid it because it's hard. We avoid it because it's messy. But the redemption of God, of his people, includes giving his people a new ability to see others and circumstances through the eyes of grace. That's what distinguishes God's people. Life and community together, I think, frankly, should be a whole lot of fun. If we take God seriously, which we certainly ought to, that's what a living sacrifice would do. You're not going to get on the altar of sacrifice if you're not taking God seriously. So if we take God seriously, and we take ourselves less seriously, which is great medicine, then we find that being a living sacrifice relieves us of the responsibility to have to control things and people. We just don't have to. Not our deal. God hasn't called us to that. He's called us to to live in community with, with great difference, great diversity. We can trust our Father seems to me we can laugh a whole lot more and have more fun. So, there are some other truths just real quickly as, as we just kind of plow through these. Uh, God has designed the body just as he wants it to be. We saw that in both Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. He's given us gifts and abilities that are to be used to bless and to nurture one another. God loves diversity. We don't. God loves differences in people that he's created. We don't. Community would would be so much easier and more pleasant if you were all like me. Boring as heck, but easier for me. But that's not the way community is. That's by his design. It is just full of this rich diversity. And until we get over ourselves, that makes us uncomfortable. But God has done it just that way. Paul says it very specifically to both the Romans and to the Corinthians that this is the way that God has done it. He has put the parts together just as he wanted them to be. And we've learned too that thinking about ourselves as a part of the body needs to be tempered by humility. Remember those words? We are to think of ourselves with sober, that's realistic, judgment according to the grace that God has given us in salvation. There's a reminder back to the first verses in Romans. How did we get to this place? It wasn't anything that we did. And so Paul says that attitude also needs to carry through in how we live our lives with one another. You know, we bring to the table the gifts and the abilities that God has given us, and there is no room there for superiority. Ha, look what I've got. Don't you wish you had this? Or boy, I'm not like him or her, and therefore, I really don't have much to offer. Paul says, no. No way. Every part is just as important as the other. God has designed it, has gifted, has given abilities. Bring it to the table of community life and live it together. Another truth that, that I have suggested to you all along, and I've, I've hinted at it again this morning, is that it's, It's God's intention for us to certainly to grow together so that that, that we as God's people are are moving that that sphere of life in my local church from, from the peripheral areas of our lives or the activity areas of our lives to more of the center of our lives. And the reason for that is because, again, this is where 
the, the life and the growth and the interaction, the iron sharpening iron, the, in, the encouraging and loving and the forgiving and the bearing with one another comes when, when we are together as God's people. And so what I have suggested all along to you is that, that no, matter, no matter what priority you give time with God's people, it needs to be higher. I don't know what your commitment is. Whatever it is, it needs to be higher. And the same is true for me. Because it, it, is, it is in the group that he has called us to be a part of that there is, is life. That is where, in large part, our faith is formed. It's, it's the forge. When one part suffers, we all suffer. From 1 Corinthians 12. When one part rejoices, we all rejoice. God's design is clearly an interconnectedness and a shared life. And it needs to be a high priority for us. So that's where we have been so far. We won't, we won't desert those themes completely. They'll, they'll come back to inform and to guide uh, the next steps in this journey. But for now, let's stand together. We've got just a couple of minutes left. I want us to read from Acts 2, my lifetime favorite text in the book of Acts. And the reason that I thought it would be fun to bring this in is because the implication of life together, of course, is time together, a priority of time together. So let's, uh, let's read these verses about this first church in Jerusalem. Here we go. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Devotion to four things, and, and these we will begin to explore uh, in the next uh, weeks and, and months together. Devotion to the apostles' teaching. Apostles had been with Jesus. Uh, it was their authority for life. Devotion to the fellowship. That is to, to the fellowship. That is body life. That's what we have been exploring together for these last weeks. Devoted to the breaking of the bread. Commentators vary on this. Very, most likely, given the fact that these were Jews, primarily, uh, they uh, were the recipients of the apostles' teaching, many of whom had been with Jesus, when Jesus said to them, this is my body broken for you. Uh, do this often. Remember me. And so... It's very likely that devotion to breaking of the bread uh, was, was the sharing of communion, sharing around meals together. They met in one another's homes. Uh, it was a priority to remember Jesus. And then, of course, there was devotion to prayer. The early believers made the connection between prayer and the power to live as the followers of Jesus. And I'm suspicious that it was probably the prayers of Jesus maybe specifically the prayer of Jesus that he taught his disciples to pray, that may have, have shaped 
their prayer lives together. Okay, here's a really quick question. It's our quickest neighbor question ever. You've got to do this in about a minute or less. Turn to the person next to you and answer this question. Why were these believers devoted to the fellowship? That's where we've been the last few weeks together. I've been saying to you, we've, we've got to be committed. This has got to be a priority. These folks are. Why were they devoted to the fellowship? See what your neighbor says. Okay, it's all the time we have. Wasn't that great? Meaningful interaction. Okay, what do you think? These believers, Jews living in Jerusalem, they were devoted the word that, that, uh, that Luke, the writer of Acts, uses there is a word that, that, that really talks about uh, commitment, uh, necessity. They, they, were, they were devoted, you could almost interpret it devoted by necessity to the fellowship, to being together. Why is that? What would you think? What would you hear from a neighbor? If God didn't exist, man would... Okay, so being reminded of the truth and learning and growing together. Okay, that's a possibility. <laughs> okay, Monica's thinking. Anybody else? Okay, they built a relationship around Jesus. Good, you remembered. Okay, filled with the Holy Spirit. What else? They could not do it. It's a double negative, isn't it? Yeah. Greeks have double negatives, actually. <laughs> okay, good. They could not do it. Mike and then Doug. They need each other. Why did they need each other? Okay, good, good. Okay, that's where you were going. Yes. Encouragement in the faith that they had embraced that had radically changed their lives and had set them apart from the predominant culture. And I would suggest to you that one of the challenges that we face as a church in America is we don't really understand how the kingdom values of God set us apart from the prevailing culture in which we live. The church in this country is pathetic because we operate along the same value system as the culture in which we live. And, and we've just got to change. By God's grace, I say we, meaning that, that big bunch of folks that call themselves God's people. It, it, it's, it's, it's for the sake of the kingdom of God. It's for the sake of the glory of Christ. Yeah, yeah. We think of those words of Jesus, when two or more are gathered together in my name, I'm there in their midst. And, and we tend to think of that as, as, as you know, prayer, when, when we're gathered together and praying, Jesus is with us. I, I think there's more there than that. When God's people are gathered together for any reason to live out the values of the kingdom, to live the life that Jesus has called them to, the Spirit of God empowers in a mighty way. The reality is, at least um, in, in the, the timeline that we see in Acts, they probably weren't being chopped up yet, but that was really close. It was right around the corner. And so you know that the heat was on. You can look in chapter 3, chapter 4, and you see the leaders are questioning and they're concerned that these disciples are, are teaching people in the name of Jesus. And, and so, yeah, that was just, it, the heat was coming immediately. 